those of you who are regulars here know that we are in the third week of a series we're calling The Sex God. And as I've been doing throughout this series, I want to warn you on the front end that this sermon is R-rated. So those of you who have young children, if you would prefer, please feel free to take them out of the service and take them to our city kids ministry. And by the way, again, I want to say when I say... R-rated. I don't mean that there's going to be nudity or violence or anything like that up here on the stage. I'm just saying in comparison to what you normally have experienced in church, this might be uh, a little more of an R-rated sermon. And I do want to thank all of you guys for the grace and the latitude that you've given to me so far in this series. Because I know that talking about sex in church, even if we want the church to talk about sex more, it's still kind of awkward, isn't it, to hear about sex in church. It hasn't always been that way, though. I want you to listen to this. Back in the 1950s, a professor of American history at Yale University did a study of what the American Puritans taught about sex. Now, for those of you who may not know who the Puritans were, uh, they are Christians who came over from England immediately following the pilgrims. And when people want to sort of ridicule Christianity for its view on sex, they will often call our view on sex uh, as puritanical, which comes from the Puritans. The funny thing is, though, that the Puritans were nothing like that at all. When they read the Bible, they saw that the Bible talked about sex in extremely frank terms, very open, very happy terms. And so as a result, the Puritan sermons were very graphic. In fact, this same professor submitted an article about this to the Yale Review that year, but the Yale Review wouldn't publish it. Here's why. They wouldn't publish it because that they found that the quotes from the Puritan sermons about sex were too graphic and too risque and that they feared that they would offend most of their readers. Now that's the Puritans, folks. The Puritans' understanding of sex was far more liberated and unrepressed than the typical reader of the Yale Review in the 1950s. How do you like that? So put that in your pipe and smoke it, all right? Turn in your Bibles this morning with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation uh, chapter 19. As I said, we're in the third week of this series. I've called this series The Sex God because as we saw in the first week, God created sex. God believes that sex is very good and he actually commands married couples to have sex for their enjoyment. Okay, that was week one. Week two last week, we saw that sex is more than just body parts. It's more than just sex. It's the way that God created to give yourself away to your spouse, to become one with your spouse, not only physically, but also emotionally and socially and intellectually and spiritually as well. And so because sex is the sign of the marriage covenant, it's incredibly important to get the order of sex and marriage right. Uh, a British philosopher and a theologian whose name is Elaine Storkey, she wrote a book called The Search for Intimacy. And here's what she said. She said that the reality is that sex must not be depended upon to initiate intimacy. Sex can only grow out of it, out of intimacy. See what she's saying? If you use sex to create intimacy, you'll never create it. Sex has to come out of intimacy. 
in order for sex to be all that God designed for it to be. Now, here's the thing. I can imagine that there are a lot of you that are thinking to yourselves this morning, okay, you know, that's all well and good, you know, what you've said so far. But, the, but look, the, the Bible was written a long time ago. Times have changed. The idea that sex and marriage are inseparable, that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, isn't that kind of old school? I mean, isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of repressive? I mean, we're modern people. We're advanced, way beyond all of that old school thinking about sex. Isn't it time that the church started thinking about sex in more advanced and more sophisticated ways? I mean, look at how the rest of the culture views it. Look at how what everybody else says about it. Doesn't the, doesn't the church need to start looking at sex in a more advanced way? C.S. Lewis once wrote this. I think it's a great answer to that question. He said, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. You know what he means by that? In other words, everything that you think is modern today, everything you think is advanced, sophisticated today, one day it's going to be old. 30 years from now, I can guarantee you, you're going to look back at yourself today and you're going to think, that's embarrassing. The clothes you wear, the technology that you use, the hairstyle, your glasses, even the beliefs that you hold, all of it, you're going to look back and you're going to say, that's embarrassing. What idiots we were. That's just the way life works. I know this to be true. I've got pictures of myself wearing long hair, parted down the middle, and wearing leisure suits. That is terrible. You're going to have the same thing happen. Because some things you see are old, and some things are new, and then there are some things that are eternal. Let me give you an example from science. The law of gravity would be an example. That's not old. It's not new. It's eternal. Uh, the Pythagorean theorem from mathematics. That's not old. That's not new. It's eternal. This morning, I want to show you why God's word on sex isn't old and it's not new. It's just it's eternal. And because it's eternal, you can't change it any more than you can change the law of gravity or the Pythagorean theorem. No matter what the times are, no matter how much the culture has changed, no matter what the culture says about sex, you can't change the eternal truths about what God says about sex. Yes, the Bible does teach that sex is reserved for marriage. It's a symbol of marriage. It says that two people are now one. It's not a way into marriage. It's not something you can separate from marriage. Yeah, that's true. But why does it say that? Is it just to spoil your fun? Why is, it, why is that eternally true? Why did God create sex and marriage to go hand in hand and to be inseparable? Well, I want to show you that this morning. Now let's start at Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power... Belong to our God, for true and just are his, just, ju his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And you're probably wondering, what in the world could that possibly have to do with sex and marriage? Well, scoop, skip down, if you would, to verse 6. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Okay. Remember now, here's the question. Why can't you separate sex from marriage? Why is that an eternal truth that you just can't change, no matter what the times are? Why is that? Why did God create sex so that it, it can only be part of marriage? Well, to show you that, I, wanna, I want you to understand something first. Here's the first thing that you need to understand this morning. Marriage, marriage is a central theme of the Bible from beginning to end. Okay, that's number one. Marriage is a central theme of the Bible from beginning to end. To end. And for the last two weeks, you guys will remember that we were, we were looking at the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. We were looking at the story of creation. And if you remember, its scope was breathtaking. You've got galaxies and land masses and oceans. And then when you get to the climax of the story of creation, what did we see? We saw that you have a husband and a wife getting married. That was at the beginning of creation. Now here we are. At the end of the Bible, at the climax of human history. And we also have a wedding. It's described as the wedding of the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. And his bride. Who's the bride? It's his church. It's all of the people uh, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got this wedding of the lamb and his bride. Now listen to me. Any book that begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding, you know that the author is trying to tell you something. But I want you to know that it's even more than that. It's even more than just the beginning and the end. This theme of marriage, this central theme of marriage, is not only at the beginning and the end of the Bible, it's all the way through the Bible. And I'm going to show you a few examples of this very quickly. If you want to go home, look look it up in more detail, feel free. But let me just show you a few examples of how marriage is a theme that runs through the entire Bible. Here's the prophet Isaiah. He says, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife, deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. Okay, that's, that's the book of Isaiah. And there's more that I could mention in the Old Testament. But let's move into the New Testament, into the Gospels. Anyone remember what the site of Jesus' first miracle was? Anybody remember where his first miracle was? It was at a wedding. Is that a marriage ceremony? And what did he do there? Well, he turned, he turned water into wine, didn't he? By the way, I heard a story about a priest um, who was driving home one night from a wedding that he had officiated at, and he got stopped uh, for speeding. And so the policeman shined his light into the car, and he sees a bottle of wine on the floor. And so he asked the priest, he says, he says sir, have you, been, have you been drinking? To which the pr- priest replied, just water, just water. The policeman asked him, why do I smell wine? And without so much as the blink of an eye, the priest said, good Lord, he's done it again. (laughs) Jesus' first miracle was done at a wedding ceremony, all right? And then, again, we're still in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees come to attack Jesus about the fact that his disciples aren't fasting. And the text says that Jesus refers to himself As a bridegroom. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus answered. 
How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Right? Here's the theme of marriage and wedding again. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he actually refers back to the first marriage in Genesis uh, chapter 2 that we've studied over the course of the last few weeks. And he says that all of that was designed to tell us something about Christ and the church. He says this in Ephesians 5. I'll read it to you. You'll recognize these verses if you've been with us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about... He says, in other words, when I'm talking about marriage, really talking about Christ and the church. So there we have it again. Now, one more thing. From this passage that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 2 again. It says that he is condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Now, if you went back into Revelation chapter 18, just before this, you would see that there's a description there of the city of Babylon, which is called the great prostitute. And Babylon, you see, represents, it represents human society without God. Like in all of its violence, in all of its oppression, in all of its corruption, in all of its sin, Babylon represents human society without God. And so even sin, here in Revelation 19, even sin is described in the language of marriage because God calls sin adultery here. So, so here's what I'm saying. I just, I just want you to have seen this and understood this so far. Marriage is a central theme of the Bible all the way from the beginning to the end. Not just the beginning, not just the end. It's also in the middle. You understand that? You've got that, right? So it's a central theme of the Bible. Now the obvious question then is why? Why is this such a central theme in the Bible. And you might say to yourself, well, sure, of course. I mean, marriage is really important. It's the building block of society. Of course, that's why it's a central theme of the Bible. But let me tell you something. There's more to it than that. More to it than that. Here's the second thing that you need to know this morning. The reason that marriage is a central theme of the Bible. Get this. God created marriage to show us to show me, to show you how he wants to relate to us. He created marriage to show us how he wants to relate to us. And you can see that in any of the verses I I, I read to you just a moment ago. Um, Here in Revelation 19, verse 7, for example, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There's the metaphor again. The lamb is Jesus. The bride is the church. Perhaps I think the most clearly this point is made is in the passage I read to you a moment ago from Ephesians 5 where Paul is talking, you know, he goes back to Genesis 2.24, he recites that and he says, but I'm really talking about Christ and the church. In other words, what he's saying is that marriage is a metaphor for Christ and his love for the church. See, here's what I want you to understand. From the beginning of the of the Bible to the end of the Bible and all the way through the Bible, what we hear God saying continually is this. We hear him saying, I want to relate to my people, not just as a king to his subjects, although I I am their king, 
I want to be closer than a king to his subjects. And he says, I don't want to relate to my people merely as a father to his children, though I am their father. I want to be closer than that. And he says, I don't want to relate to my people merely as a shepherd relates to his sheep, though I am their shepherd. I want to be closer than that. And so he creates marriage and he uses it as a metaphor to show us the kind of relation, uh, relationship that he wants with us. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but there is no other religion in the world that dares talk about a relationship with God like this in the context, this kind of intimacy in marriage, only Christianity. Now, what I want to do is I want to take a moment and I want to show you how this works. I want to think about three characteristics of marriage and what they teach us about how God wants to relate to us. Now, there's more. There's more than three characteristics, but uh, that's all I have time for this morning. I think you'll see, even in just these three, I think you'll see why God's perspective on sex is eternal and why sex and marriage are inseparable in any culture, no matter when it is, okay? Okay. Now, before I do, before I mention these three characteristics, I just want to say something. I recognize that there are many of you that are in marriages or have been in marriages in the past that are far from ideal. I get that. I understand that. What I'm telling you is that the way that God designed marriage, the ideal for marriage, that ideal is how he wants to relate to us. It's a metaphor It shows us how he wants to relate to us, all right? So don't think about, don't think necessarily about your marriage or the bad experience that you might have had with marriage or are having with marriage. Think about the ideal that marriage is supposed to be. Okay, like for instance, let me give you, let's just state the obvious. Let's start with this characteristic of marriage. Marriage is an intimate relationship. That's pretty obvious, right? What's the difference between the way a king, a father, or a shepherd relates to you compared to a spouse? What's the difference? Well, if you think about it, a king, a father, and a shepherd, those are all external relationships. They're outside of you. You obey a king, you love a father, you follow a shepherd. But a spouse? Spouse, that's very different. That's not just external. Listen to me. The groom physically enters the bride, doesn't he? In sexual intercourse. Okay? It's the most intimate human relationship there is. And so God chose the most intimate relationship on earth to describe how he wants to relate to us. And I want to tell you something. You will never have the relationship with God that your soul longs for until you understand that God wants to be more than your king or your father or your shepherd. He wants to be your spouse. He wants to be your husband. Listen, listen to this from Isaiah 62. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now, okay, I I mean, I realize that there are some of you men who are probably like, wait a minute, I'm a bride now? Well, look, it's a metaphor, so go with it. The purpose of the metaphor is to say that marriage, which is the closest, most intimate of all human relationships, in which a husband and wife become one sexually, physically, intellectually, socially, 
emotionally. He's saying, that's how close I want to be with you. That's how much I dig you, he's saying. I want to be one with you. Let me go even further. He's, he wants to be in you, which is exactly what happens, isn't it? When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what, is, what does God do? He sends his, he sends his Holy Spirit, God in, in, in the Spirit, to be in you, right? You see how the metaphor conveys this? And can you see why? If you try to make sex just sex, if you try to reduce it down to just body parts, if you try to separate it from marriage, not only do you cheapen sex, not only is it reductive, but it also distorts the message that God wants to communicate to humanity through marriage. If sex isn't reserved for marriage, if it isn't reserved for the most intimate relationship on earth, then it loses its ability. Marriage loses its ability to communicate the kind of relationship that God wants with humanity. So there's an example. Sex is, excuse me, marriage is an intimate relationship because of of sex. Now let let me just give you another one. Marriage, it's also a legal arrangement. It's a legal arrangement. In every culture, in every place, if you're poor and you marry someone rich, even though you didn't earn any of it, when you get married legally, then you're rich. In the same way, the Bible says, you and I are sinners. We're poor. But when we marry Christ by faith, when you say, Father, accept me not on the basis of my life, but on the basis of Christ's life and death on the cross, you get his wealth. You get his righteousness. You get his very standing before God. Okay? Same thing. And so if sex isn't a sign of marriage, excuse me, so if sex is a sign of marriage, you can't separate sex from the legal aspect of marriage without also losing the message of the kind of intimacy that God wants to communicate to humanity through marriage. God wants to give you all of the wealth of Jesus just as a husband and a wife do with one another. Now let me tell you something. This is why Christianity has always opposed the idea of living together. I'm not trying to throw any shame around here. I'm not trying to guilt anybody. I'm really not. Uh, That's not not the way I work, and that's certainly not the way the gospel works, which is more important. The reason that Christianity has always been opposed to living together is because you can't separate sex. In marriage, you you can't separate sex from a legal arrangement. Okay? Marriage itself is a legal arrangement. I know that in our culture, living together is seen as kind of a mid-step between dating and getting married. It's a way to kind of try out marriage. And I get the logic, but here's the thing. You can't try out marriage. You can't separate sex from the legal arrangement without losing something of the purpose of marriage and something of the message of marriage. I always think it's amusing that in like romantic comedies, when a couple 
uh, moves in together. It's usually after some romantic time that they've had together, you know, like a candlelit dinner, whatever. But listen, I want to tell you something. If you want to try out marriage, don't decide to move in together after a romantic date. Move in when she has the stomach flu. That's a better way to try out marriage, okay? You, I'm joking because you, you can't really try out marriage because without a legally binding arrangement... You're just playing house and sleeping together. There's stuff you're holding back from each other, okay? Again, no guilt. I'm not trying to throw guilt. I'm not trying to throw shame. I'm just explaining. This is why Christianity has always opposed living together because when you try to separate sex from marriage, you distort God's message to humanity of the kind of relationship that he wants with us. More than king, more than father, more than shepherd. More than just a live-in. He wants to be your husband. And he wants to give you all of the wealth of Jesus. And that only happens in a legal arrangement. Okay, here's the third. Marriage is an exclusive arrangement. It's an exclusive arrangement. A husband and a wife are to have intimacy with one another like they have with no one else. I want you to imagine for a moment a guy who says he, he, goes, to, uh, he goes to his fiance and he, he gets on his knees, he, excuse me, he gets on his knee before her and he says, he's, you know, he asks her to marry him and he says, you know, I want you to, you know, I want you to be physically intimate with me and I want you to be emotionally intimate with me and I want you to be socially intimate with me and I want you to be spiritually intimate with me and I want you to be intellectually intimate with me. But I want, I want to be free to be all of those things with other people too. Like I want you to be exclusive, but I want to be free. What's she going to say? If she has any sense, she's going to say, no, no way. In the same way, God wants an exclusive relationship with us. We can't go to him and say, hey, be my God, penetrate my life, but I want to have other gods too. No, the Bible says he's a jealous God. He wants an exclusive relationship with you. And so because sex is a sign of marriage, if you try to take it out of the exclusive arrangement that marriage is, you lose the sense of how much God wants you. How much he wants to be your husband. And he doesn't want anybody else to be. Why does a spouse get jealous? Well, I mean, okay, there could be a lot of reasons, I guess. But one of the reasons is that you want to be the one and only for that person. You want to give them and get from them what no one else can. And this is what God is trying to communicate to us through marriage. Exclusivity. Okay, now, you know, those three things, you know, uh, intimacy and uh, the legal aspect and uh, the exclusivity of marriage, uh, that's not an exhaustive list. By any stretch of the imagination, the characteristics of marriage and what they teach us about how God wants to relate to us. I'm going to leave that, I'm going to leave the rest of the development of that idea to those of you who are in city life groups this week. As you meet in your groups, you can think of a more exhaustive list of how marriage conveys how God wants to relate to us. But I think that you see what I'm saying here. God chose marriage, the sign of which is sex, to communicate the kind of intimate relationship that he wants to have with us. Let me summarize it this way. If you try to separate 
the inseparable relationship between sex and marriage, you distort the message that God wants to send humanity through marriage. That's what I've been saying. That's what I've been saying through this, okay? That's the point. Now, let me just, let me just give you three quick implications of this, and then we'll close, okay? The first one it has to do with virginity. The way that kids are usually taught is, you know, uh, virginity is about the absence of having sex. And that's it. It's not terribly motivating, to be honest with you. If you understand what we're saying here today, you begin to understand that virginity is about more than just the absence of sex. Virginity is preserving in your body the message of God's desire for intimacy with humanity. It's a way of saying, I've chosen not to have sex. Uh, Not because sex is bad, not not for any of those reasons. I've chosen it because because sex is reserved for marriage. and, And God did that because... Because he wants to show us how close he wants to be to us. I mean, I, I know this is odd to say it like this. I, I, you know, and, and I know that probably the average 16-year-old isn't going to take this and, and use it this way. But it's almost, it, it is. It's an evangelistic tool. Right? Like it's a way of saying. Sex shows how intimate. God wants to be with you because he digs you. That's why I reserve. I don't want to I don't want to mess that message up. Okay. Parents, can, I got to tell you, you've got to teach that to your kids. Listen, you've got to talk to your kids about sex. Uh, one of the things I would tell you is that as soon as you can, begin talking to your kids about uh, you know, their genitals in anatomically correct terms. And then as they get older, begin to talk to them about sex, why God created sex, what it's about. Build that kind of relationship with them and and make sure that as you talk to them about this, you explain to them that sex is reserved for marriage because it shows how God wants, how close he wants to be to us. Explain that to them. Don't just say don't have sex. That is, I mean, nobody's going to respond to that very well. Tell them why. Tell them why. Parents, that's, that's part of your responsibility. You have to do that. Okay. Here's the second implication. There's an implication for sex outside of marriage. Listen, not only does it distort the message for others of, you know, of marriage and how intimate God wants to be with us, but it also distorts it for you. I'm going to tell you something. It makes it harder for you to understand and experience and feel the extent of God's love and desire for you. Like you, you know, you know how sometimes you know something in your head, but you can't get it to your heart? You know that, you know that issue? Sex outside of marriage makes it more difficult for this message to go from head to heart because you've separated the two. Okay? So yeah, it distorts it for other people, but it also makes it harder for you to understand and experience and feel the extent of God's love and desire for you. And then third, for those of you who are in a sexless marriage. I also want, I want you to understand that a sexless marriage also makes it harder for you to understand and experience God's love for you. 
Because look, every time that you're sexually intimate with your spouse, you re-experience that connection and that intimacy and that oneness that God says, that's the way I want to relate to you. You re-experience it every time. This is why God says in, uh, we saw this uh, last week in 1 Corinthians 7, why he says, you know, he says to the husband and the wife, he says, he says you're, I, I command you to have sex. And he even goes on and he says, he says, wife, your body is not your own. Husband, your body isn't your own. What he's saying is that sex is a way that you re-experience this kind of intimacy that God wants to have with you. And so he says, make sure married couples have sex. And if you're in a sexless marriage, understand that you're doing damage not only to your own spiritual life, but also to your spouse's spiritual life. Sex and marriage go hand in hand. Christianity, what I, you know, I hope that you're getting that Christianity elevates both sex and marriage in a way that it gives them, or in that, it gives sex and marriage transcendent meaning where our culture reduces sex to just body part. Now, let me close with this. In this passage in, in Revelation 19, there, there are three characters. One's a prostitute. We've talked about that. One is a bride. We've talked about that. And one is the lamb, who is Jesus. If you understand that the prostitute represents sinful humanity... And if you understand that the bride represents people who believed in Christ and who have this intimate relationship we've been talking about with God through Christ, then you understand why there's a lamb in the middle. Because the only thing that will turn us from a prostitute into a bride is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Okay? Do you guys remember the wedding that we were talking about earlier? We are talking about the fact that Jesus is there, he turns the water into wine. Actually, what happens is his mother comes running up to him and says, Jesus, we've run out of wine early. Do something about it. This is a social crisis in that culture because wine was the joy of the feast, of the marriage feast. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, but mom, it's not my hour, meaning, meaning his crucifixion. It's not, it, my hour hasn't come yet, referring to his crucifixion. The only way to make sense of that is to ask yourself, what do single people do at a wedding? What do single people do at a wedding? Yeah, I know what single people do at a wedding because I was single until I was 32 years old. And let me tell you something. I was a groomsman in 17 weddings. So I know that of which I speak here. What do single people do at a wedding? They all wonder, will I ever be married? What will my wedding look like? So when Jesus said to his mom, this isn't my hour, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about you. Because he's saying, mom, you're right. There's no joy at a wedding without wine. If my bride is going to fall into my arms, if I'm ever going to get married, and if she's going to drink the cup of joy, I'm going to have to die. Every time we celebrate communion together, what does the cup represent? Well, the cup represents the blood that Jesus Christ shed for us, the wine. The blood that Jesus shed for us. Okay? And do you remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died? He said, uh, Lord, take this cup from me. If you will, take this cup from me. What cup was he talking about? He was talking about the cup of God's wrath. 
And you see, the book of Revelation is sort of, it's a wrapping up. Whatever else it means, it's a wrapping up of all of the major themes of the Bible. They're all coming together in the book of uh, Revelation. The only way that we can go from being prostitutes to being brides, the only way the punishment for our adulteries could be wiped away, the only way that we could lie in the arms of our true spouse and drink the cup of joy at the end of time, is if Jesus lay on the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of God's joy. He's thinking about all of that at the wedding in Cana. He was thinking of you. And so he made the wine for his mother, to point us to his death on the cross and to the marriage of the Lamb at the end of history. Like any single person, he was wondering, he was thinking, will I ever get married? What will my bride look like? And in order for that day to come, I have to die. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, as I've talked this morning, I can imagine that there are many of us in the room today who have used sex in a way that is very different than the way that God intended for it to be used. And we've distorted the message that God wanted to communicate through our own sex outside of marriage. And if that's the case, you know, if you're, if you're in that situation, you know, if that's true of you, you, you don't need to walk out of this room with guilt and shame. That's not the point here this morning. If you feel, if you know that you've used sex in a way different than God intended it to be used, just drop that at the foot of the cross because at the, at the cross, Jesus died for your sexual sins, for my sexual sins. So don't walk out of this room today and say, whoa, they were trying to make me feel guilty. They were trying to shame me. No, that's not it at all. In fact, just the opposite. We want you to drop those at the foot of the cross. For those of you who are here today who maybe never have understood before that that the significance of Jesus' death on the cross is that he had to die for your sins and and a relationship with God isn't based upon your life and your goodness. It's based upon Christ's goodness and his death on the cross. And that if by faith you believe in Christ, that his death is the only way that your sins can be forgiven. The Bible says that you are given eternal life. But even more than that, the Bible says that you become a spouse to the Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship that's closer than any other relationship in all of in all of human life. It's how close you become. And that that's where the that's where eternal life comes. That the life of Jesus is put inside of you. 
So this would be a good moment right now to just, in the privacy of your seat, just tell Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I believe that you're the only way that my sins could be paid for. Be my savior. Be my husband. Be my spouse. These are, as Paul said, Lord, mysterious themes. Very profound things that we have a hard time getting our heads around for many reasons. Lord, I pray that you would drive this message home today. And that through this metaphor of marriage, Lord, that you would communicate and convey to the hearts of people in a way that I cannot convey to them the depth of intimacy that you want to have with them. And Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray.